and that was Jolly from beginning to end. That was The Smiths and the track titled Still Ill from the album Hatful of Hollow. I'm David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop. This week's special guest is going to be Peter Coyne from The Godfathers because I caught up with him last week to find out more about life in a band. What they got up to, especially in the years of this Sid Presley experience right through to their current activity. So I'm going to bring you that interview that's going to be cut up into about four easy to digest little segments throughout the show. But to kick off the party, I think we should play a track. This is going to be your favourite of mine, Birth School, Work, Death. Take it away. Work, 
Yes, Chartland Sands. That was birth school, work death from, I was going to say, the Sid Presley experience. No, the Godfathers and uh, featuring the one and only Peter Coyne on vocals. And that was taken from their 1988 album with the same title. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And as you can gather, this is going to be a Godfather special because I caught up with Peter very recently. I say we're about to embark on another tour this coming autumn. And I'll give you some info and dates a bit later on when we have a bit of the interview. But um, just to keep things jolly, he says, looking down at his notes, I think we'll play another track and then the first part of the interview with Peter Coyne. But this is going to be actually a track from the Sid Presley experience. And yes, you've guessed it. Up, two, three, four, take it away. Fuck! 
Now that is quality rock and roll. And that was the Sid Presley experience and the track got up to three, four. This is David Eastall, the C86 show. A little bit later on, I'll tell you how you can contact me, if you so wish, which is always nice. But anyway, I think we'll have the first part of my interview with Peter Coyne that I had just very recently. In fact, last week, as he was about to embark on yet another exciting tour and more work in the pipeline. But anyway, this is the first part of the interview where I talk about that famous tube um, performance when they were introduced by the one and only Paula Yates. And this was Peter's reply. Peter, what was your reply? Sure. Can I explain about that appearance? That was on the TV programme called The Tube. Yes. Which was the biggest uh, music programme of the 80s. And uh, it was the first time uh, the Sid Fraser experience, or, or myself or anybody else in the band, was on national live on national TV. And uh, Paulie Yates was just horrible. She's a horrible person anyway. And the sort of introduction she gave to us that night was uh, just underwhelming. Do you know what I mean? But um, so, yeah, we got through that. And when it actually appeared on, you know, live on TV, it, it looked fantastic. It was, it was really rocking. Do you know what I mean? Yes. But um, we didn't really last that much longer after that performance on the tube. So... That was it, because the Sid Prez Experience was uh, a pretty good band, a great band. We made one excellent record called Public Enemy Number One, Up Two, Three, Four, and that got loads of really great reviews and uh, took us, you know, to quite a few places. We've done tours supporting Gary Glitter, would you believe it or not? You know, we've done lots of other dates around sort of Europe, and then we've done a tour with um, Billy Bragg on, it was called Jobs for Youth, and it was uh, all over the UK with... Porky the Poet, who's now uh, Phil Jupitus, and uh, Hank Wangford was on a couple of dates as well. So it's all sort of tied in with um, the Labour Party movement at that time. You know, it was a good tour to do, to, to be honest with you. But um, the Sid Rose Experience was a very argumentative band. They were more concerned with arguing and fighting than writing songs, which I thought was just silly. You know, you're in the business of entertaining people and writing great numbers and, you know... We never followed through on the initial promise of that band, so I was really pleased when we started The Godfathers. Yes, but I should five. know this, but was one of the members of the Sid Presley experience your brother? Yeah, that's right, he was, yeah. Yeah, oh, he is. Yeah. And, and did that, was that a good thing or a bad thing at the time? It was a good thing at the time. We were both in it together. Yes. And, um, you know, we both started the Godfathers together. Okay, so so it was the other two members. It wasn't you and your brother having sort of the Gallagher yeah, issue. Yeah, exactly. Okay, they, they thought they thought they were Led Zeppelin because they'd made a brilliant record, and uh, we followed it up with another one, which is a, a version of uh, John Lennon's Cold Turkey, which we released on our own label, and that was like single of the week and quite a few music yes. papers at the time as well. And that's round about when we took off on that. Uh, Tour with uh, Billy Bragg around the UK. Yes, because I realised yeah. that sort of having done quite a lot of these interviews, that one of the things that was key to most people's musical success was because being able to either sort of claim unemployment benefit or be on the enterprise allowance scheme, which gave someone mm-hmm. a sort of a minimum wage. So, was that also, you know, a factor in sort of helping your sort of early musical kind of career? Definitely, definitely, because. Um, at that time, you could uh, sign on and still be in a group, you know. Yes. We were um, living in squats at the time, and uh, so we didn't have much outgoing, so to speak. So we could concentrate on on the band. It's, it's you know, it's really, it's pretty, nowadays it's totally different. It's 
pretty much impossible for working class people to to get a band together because they've been so crushed and overwhelmed by the establishment to be forced into working. It's there's a real unfair imbalance in today's society where sorry to say but uh, middle class and upper class people they can afford to get internships they can afford to uh, start bands and rely on the bank of mum and dad working class people don't have that access to that kind of largesse do you know what i mean so also it means that uh more horribly that you'd never see a band nowadays like Slade, for instance, or the Sex Pistols, because they're all working class uh, people. And, you know, I think it's a, a massive shame that you don't get bands like that coming through now from that kind of background. But it's not just happening in music, that imbalance, that social imbalance that I'm talking about. It's happening in lots of areas as well. There's quite a few, like, real top actors complaining about, you know, it's uh, uh, there's a chasm in, in the arts today. Krista Reckleston, uh, Maxine Peake, quite a few other actors as well, they all acknowledge that fact that it's so difficult for working class people uh, or people from working class background to break into the arts these days. And that, that goes for acting, it goes for music, it goes for lots of things as well. Yes, I know. Well, I, I sort of realised doing this show that probably 90% of the people who were in bands had that kind of um, slight security of being on the unemployed for those two, three years. And then then luckily, you know, that when they made their first record and album, that kind of kept them slightly sort of um, able to pay the rent. And then when the band finished, that was the end of it. But, but at least they had that five years, because that's what I found so kind of um, consistent was most bands do have a five-year narrative before it sort of goes a slightly pear shape as well. Um, I think it's a lot to do with um, when you first start a band, uh, it's the same for the Godfathers as it would have been the same for The Who or The Pistols or any any band out there, really. Everybody's, you know, really excited and they want to do find out what the next step is and they're all in it together and it's all new and that's where you enjoy it from and that's where you get that initial rush and energy from that you translate into your recordings, you know? Yeah. And then after, you know, you've sort of achieved some kind of a success, doesn't matter whether it's the Who, again, the Pistols or the Godfathers, you start running into problems of uh, our ego from people in the band and uh, also from uh, maybe, you know, somebody's married or they've got a, a partner or something like that and instead of the band being the first thing in their life it's like oh Susie doesn't want me to do this you know it's, it's all like that it doesn't matter which group it is it's generally pretty much the same yes because I sort of realised that because you know it was like getting together often you know with not, not much else to do you know signing on having a good time doing the single if John Peel picked it up then there was often a session that went with that and then the album and mm-hmm. things were don't, don't going quite well it was often the second album possibly the third and if anybody ever do, does America that always seemed to finish most bands off but so it was kind right. of I hadn't realised this kind of the five years of a, of a band you know you could almost get to well, date, Richard Attenborough or um, one of those kind of naturalists mm. talking about it as, as this kind of this cr- yeah. this kind of beast dies in a slightly sort of messy way. But but obviously you the, you the Godfathers were... the Godfathers though, talking about America the Godfathers as soon as we formed that was about May or June 1985 we started off with um, two gigs in the UK and then we went over to America for four gigs straight away straight away as soon as the band was formed we was off to America and it went from four days. 
So the next time we went out was like uh, two weeks. Next time we went after that was a month. You know, take it on another six months or a year, and we was going out to America for two months on tour. Then it was three months on tour in America, and then at the end of the uh, original lineup of the Godfathers, around about 1989, it was four months working in America on tour. So it definitely expanded from four dates to four months. Do you see what I mean? Yes. And that does cause a lot of pressure on on anybody, you know, because there's a lot of work to do and. Uh, you feel a bit alienated from society when you're trapped in a band and in a bubble. It's great when you're playing music and you're on stage, but it's all the downtime as well. You've got to factor in and then people start taking drugs, don't they? <laughs> you know? Which doesn't really help the situation. Ego plus cocaine equals explosion. Yes. Well, there was a member, the drummer from the Screaming Blue Messiahs, who just said that mm-hmm. when they went to America, you know, the amount of drugs, especially during that period, was just absolutely phenomenal. You know, everybody was just giving, mm. it, giving it to you straight away. And, and immediately, you know, a member of the band just starts to think they're Jesus. And um, that doesn't help, you know, if it's a three-piece. <laughs> All you'd have to do is have a look at Scarface which was based around about that time and came out around about that time to see what America was like with cocaine during the 80s. Indeed, it was a murky time. But also the 80s had its um, upsides, downsides and all sorts. And um, now we look back, it looks pretty damn funky. Anyway, that was the first part of my interview with uh, Peter Coyne from The Godfathers and obviously from the Sid Presley experience as well. You can see that clip of them on the tube on um, if you go to YouTube, in fact. And if you want to know any more information about The Godfathers, they do have a very good website with all the latest information, um, including a current tour that they're doing this winter and they're going around Europe and the, the UK. So do check that out. But anyway, I think we'll play a little bit more music. And then another part of the interview this is from an album that came out last year that is also titled a big bad beautiful noise take it away
I know, I'm basically hyperventilating with excitement. That was The Godfathers, and that's a track titled A Big Bad Beautiful Noise that came out last year on an album that was also titled A Big Bad Beautiful Noise. Do check out their latest work because it's just as good as their early stuff. This is David Eastall, this is the C86 Show, and this is going to be the second part of my interview with Peter Coyne where we talk about the creative process and uh, the ability of The Godfathers to produce virtually an album of year during the late 80s and this was Peter's response. Peter, give us your response. Yeah, because like I said, uh, you know, we wanted to concentrate on writing great songs. That's the idea of being in a, a classic rock and roll band is that you put out quite a lot of product. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I was brought up on bands like uh, the Beatles and the Stones and um, when I was a, you know, a very young kid in the 60s, that was what the first pop music I heard on the radio. And those sort of people, they put out a single every three months uh, that wasn't on any albums and an album every sort of 10 months, as well as doing lots of tours, lots of dates, radio sessions, the whole lot. Those people, those bands from the 60s were very, very hard working, you know. And they, you, know, you look at what the Beatles might have achieved in any two, three, four year period. It's uh, incredible what they did, you know. Yes. You know, just in, from 66 to 68 alone or 65 to 68, it's Rubber Soul, Revolver, uh, Sergeant Pepper, White Album. These are all groundbreaking albums, you know. And in between them, well, they're, they're releasing singles, you know. So it's amazing. That, so I like that kind of work ethic from a group. And that's why I wanted to put into uh, The Godfathers as well, is that work hard, play hard, do you know what I mean? Yes. Well, there was two people I, I was always very obsessed with and, and keen on, and there was David Bowie, who was kind of that first single and mm-hmm. first album. And then, you know, looking at his career, you know, in the 70s, he, he released an album a year, plus relocated twice and produced other people's work and did major world tours. And also Lemmy from Motorhead as well was another person who, uh-huh. there wasn't a sort of a plan B, it was going to be, I'm going to be in music from the Rockin' Vickers to Hawkwind right through all yeah. his life until he was 69. So... So I realised that there is a kind of that generation, you know, music was going to be it and there was no sort of plan B. Yeah, Bowie recorded uh, Ziggy Stardust practically straight away after he recorded Hunky Dory. I mean, Hunky Dory wasn't even released, I think, when they went into the studio and recorded uh, Ziggy Stardust again. And then all those records sort of followed one after the other, like you were saying. There's a slight anecdote there in that... um, we were playing a festival around about 1988 in Switzerland, and Motorhead were headlining. The Dan was second on the bill, the Godfather's a third on the bill. And we finished our set, and I came off stage, and Lemmy was standing there, and he said to me, So when do you get to play the good one then? Which I thought was, I couldn't work out, but he's just insulted me, basically. Do you know what I mean? And yes. I walked past him, and then I walked on a little bit more, maybe another 10 feet, and there was a guy sitting on a flight. Uh, uh, flight case by in the, in, the, in the side of the wings of the festival and he just went watcher and that was David Bowie you know so bang bang straight away Bowie come to see us in Switzerland and he loved the Godfathers it was such an honour for him to come and see us and you know he brought the whole of Tim Machine along with him and they formed like the next year after that and uh, he come to see us again in um, Los Angeles when we played in 1989 wow. Bowie was um um, obviously one of my heroes when I was growing up. When I was growing up, when I was a teenager, the very first music that I got into was sort of uh, glam rock, like like Roxy Music and like David Bowie and like Alice Cooper and like 
all those people that were about at that time. That's when I started buying records for myself. So for himself, David Bowie, to actually turn up and see the Godfathers, fathers and love the Godfathers was such a thrill. It was amazing. I, I, I cried absolutely when he died, you know. Yes, well, yeah, no, I was um, absolutely, because I'd sort of been obsessed with him and sort of followed him. So even that year, uh-huh. all that period when he had just disappeared, I kept sort of waiting. And then, you know, that single came out and it was like, oh, my God, he's about and it's he's back, you know. And, and then the new album was coming out and his birthday. And it's like, oh, this is fantastic. And it was like, shit, he's dead. It's like, what yeah, happened, yeah. you know? And I did interview yeah. Woody Woodmansey quite recently, and he was telling me that that night that, that his band that he had with Tony Visconti were playing a gig quite near where Bowie lived, and they phoned him to wish him happy birthday, and they, you know, they all sung from the stage. And then the next day, you know, Woody Woodmansey, his phone was going mad, and it's like, what's that? And it's like, David's dead. It's like, what? But we spoke to him last night from the stage, and we yeah. wished him a happy yeah. birthday. Yeah. It, was, it was an amazing story. I just thought, God, how, how does yeah. your brain compute with that? You know, it's like, yeah. No. Oh, Jesus. No, that was a, that was. Um, I think things changed when Bowie died. It was just like somehow I don't know. Everything's kind of gone a bit strange, really. But anyway, look. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Now I feel depressed even more. So keeping. Yeah. So with with the, you know, the those kind of eighties that eighties period because because obviously when you hit your first album hit by hit which was eighty six there was there was a lot of kind of there was the whole red wedge movement and like you said you'd done that jobs for youth experience did um. I mean, obviously, that whole period must have been feeding into your music and that sort of anger as well. Yeah, because um, rock and roll bands are the mirrors of society, aren't they? They reflect what's, what's going on, what the best ones do anyway. And that's what, you know, I've always tried to put into the Godfather's music then and still now with uh, our most recent album, A Big Bad Beautiful Noise, which we put out last year. So a lot of my sort of attitudes or ideas haven't really changed since then. The music might have changed or might have expanded or got bigger or badder or more beautiful or whatever. But, yeah, you, you do pick up on what's out there because, you know, that's that's what you do when you're in a group. That's how you write your numbers if you're, if you're trying to be clever about it. Yes. Well, I always think... One you, of the... you, sum up, you sum up society, you know what I mean? Yes. Well, I always, I always think that one of the albums is that one by the Redskins, which, which was um, had quite a lot on it, which we all sort of uh, consumed with uh, great enthusiasm. So, when we, you know, with the duration of the band, especially in that early year, did you have a point because you, because you did sort of go until sort of two thousand? Was there a time when you just said, "This is this is the end. I can't go on with it." Uh, I'd rather not talk about the year 2000 now because we haven't even talked about Hit by Hit or Bosco Work Death or more songs about Love and Hate or Unreal World or any of those albums. Do you see what I mean? Yes. You know, we wanted to, like I said earlier, to to work hard and play hard and and tour everywhere, you know, and with each record we try to do from Hit by Hit to Bosco Work Death, there's like some kind of a significant progression in terms of the whole band attitude or the sound of the group or whatever. You can never recapture what a band puts out on their first album because that's that's your first statement. And of course it's gonna be like this or like that, but you can always you can always make it better, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I, the... I'm still really proud of a lot of those songs on that first album. I want everything. This damnation, Lonely Man, um Love is Dead was eventually on uh, Hit by Hit because that was our last single for our own label. That was all those Hit by hit on those songs, um, they were all released on our own label, Corporate Image, and they done so well on uh, 
independent charts in the UK and all around Europe. And uh, there was a massive buzz building about the band all the time, especially after people got the chance to see us live after releasing those records. And that's what led us to, uh, to getting signed up to Epic Records uh, in America in the first place. So Epic Records, you know, stuck. they had Michael Jackson on there and George Michael and people like that. So we went from the smallest label in the world, which is our own label, Corporate Image, to the biggest record label in the world, uh, Epic Records. And that's when we released that album, Birth School, Work, Death. Yeah. And did you manage to... That's one thing that I've sort of noticed. A lot of people got caught out with the admin and the publishing. How did you navigate those kind of murky waters? What do you, what do you mean? Sorry. Well, well, some people, you know, like, like you know... For, you know, certain bands and, and there was plenty just signed with people where, you know, they thought they had a good deal, but actually it turned out it wasn't a good deal and they don't have the right to their music. And, and so the band, you know, they have a kind of love-hate relationship because, you know, like from, from sort of age of chance to the very things are just kind of like, well, we don't have that, that any ownership to the music and we still can't really archive it or particularly access it because somebody else owns it. And I just wondered how... Oh, come on, come on. That's that, that just... Bands being naive, you know, every band gets screwed over in the music business. That's that's the, just the way it goes, you know. But I can't complain about being signed to uh, up to Epic Records, and um, they never really told us you've got to do this and you must do that. We always done what we was going to do anyway, so it would have come out in corporate image or Epic Records, pretty much the same. Yes. You know what I mean? We we still carried like Vic Mal produced all those singles that became hit by here in the first place, and we took Vic. With Vic Mel with us to to make the Birth School Work Death album and the album after that, more songs about love and hate. You know, we was not insistent about it. But we just said, well, Vic's producing this album and that's it. These mm. are the songs we would like to put out through you. There's the album. That's it. You know, I, I don't want to complain about. Uh, so many people complain about the music industry. Oh, I didn't get this or I didn't get that. Stop moaning. Stop complaining. That's the music industry for you, you know? The interesting and sometimes murky world that is the music industry. That was the second part of my interview with Peter Cohen from The Godfathers. If you want to contact me, um, you can via Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86show. I will be there. And it's always a delight as long as it's positive and groovy. Otherwise, don't bother. Anyway, I think we'll have another track and then more chat. This is going to be a track titled, Because I Said So.
Yep, can't fault that one either. That is The Godfathers and the track hall um, titled Because I Said So. This is going to be the third part of my interview with Peter Coyne where we talk about um, the longevity of a band and the fact that um, if you stay in the game, different musical fashions come and go. And obviously during the 80s there was quite a few including the indie scene, then dancing, grunge, Britpop, and um, to try and navigate those different, um, I suppose, fashions that the media create, it can be difficult for a band who suddenly becomes sort of Norman no-mates. And this was Peter's answer. Peter, I know you've got an answer to this. Definitely. I mean, we got, we got fabulous press during all that period. Cannot complain about that again either whatsoever. But the thing that separates the Godfathers from all those British bands that were out there in the um, 80s is the Godfathers are a rock and roll band. You know, we're not part of the independent scene. We had our own independent label, but we weren't an indie band. And it makes no difference to me whether somebody wants to get into dance music or grunge or whatever you want to call it. I mean, you know, we are the Godfathers. We make rock and roll music. This is how we do it, and that's it. And generally, people like it all around the world. We've still got a massive following pretty much in most countries, so it's I'm really grateful for. But I think they recognise, all those people, that the Godfathers have got some kind of, um, I don't know, a definite passion for what we're doing. And um, we got principles, and we're not going to give them up, you know? Yes. And um... We're not part of the scene. We're not part of the scene. We, we, were, like, we were, like, before Britpop. Do you know what I mean? When... People told the Godfathers and the Sid Perry's experience when we started out, oh, guitar bands are on their way out. You, you know, nobody's interested in that anymore. You know, same thing as what they told the Beatles in 1962 or 63. It's the same old rubbish. Who listens to that crap, you know? You've got to have your own sound and your own ideas and you've got to make records better than everybody else and, and play fantastic on stage. And Godfathers have always tried to do that. Yes, because your last, the last record you did on Epic, which was Unreal World, was that mm-hmm. the sort of completing of your the contract you had with them? No, no. We were signed up to uh, when they sign you up to a massive label like um, Epic Records. Um, uh, the deal was sort of open ended, you know. So uh, we got to release three albums through them. Birth School Work Death was uh, um, a great collection of songs. But some people regard these hit by hit, both school work death and the album that followed that more songs about love and hate and unreal world as absolute classics. So again, we can't complain about anything about the product we released, the fact that they didn't sell either here nor there, according to, you know, Michael Jackson sort of type uh, figures of selling or George Michael's figures of selling is neither here nor there. Hmm. We got to release those albums. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And, um, when when the time's up, the time's up. It's simple as that. They soon let you know when they don't want you. But I think we finished with uh, Epic Records, with Unreal World, with a, with a great album. You know. Yes, and then sort of, and then you sort of obviously sort of went back. Did you go back into being on your own label after that with the the sort of the Orange? Was it the Orange album? Uh, you... Yeah, it was the Orange, Orange album. It's called the Orange album. It was just called the Godfathers. Uh, the album itself but it's got a, an orange on the cover and that's why people refer to it as an orange album yes this is, it all makes sense and and the one i mean obviously with with being the sort of the, the sort of the front man 
and and sort of taking that leadership. How did you sort of cope with sort of personnel changes as as the band sort of went through different years and different albums? Uh, sometimes better than others, to be quite honest with you. But I mean, these things happen, you know. I mean, if somebody doesn't want to be in a band, you can't. I'd like to put a gun against their head and say you've got to be in this man, but that's not really the way to do it, is it? Do you know what I mean? Yes. And also, sometimes it's really good because uh, new blood is absolutely fantastic for a group, for the right group at the right time. You know? Yes. You know, if uh, when the original lineup sort of started to dissipate and uh, fall apart, you know, you just have to keep moving, you know? But it does weigh you down after a while, you know? We tried that for maybe five, six, seven, eight years after that. And that's why we really, we decided to knock it on the head in the year 2000 because it was just, I just wanted to just to be like a normal person. And, you know, it's not, you're not, when you're in a band, you're not really a normal person. You try to be, but you're really, you're in a bubble of the music industry and music environment and the band's more important than this, that and the other. And I just wanted to be a human being at the end of the day. So, that's it, me and my brother knocked the band on the head and just took seven, eight years off and that was it. Yes. And did you and did you have a during was it did it feel like it was definitely sort of approaching, you know, that last year when you were in the band? Did you feel like yeah, did was it an idea that kept creeping or did you sort of have a kind of more of a Ziggy Stardust moment? Not really, no. No. I mean there was one day and it was like there was a tour coming up with Europe and I just said at the end of this one, I said, I don't want to do anymore. And that's it. Yeah. So, uh, but, you know, all, all of this comes full circle after a while, you know, because there was sort of some kind of demand for the original lineup of the band to get back together. And uh, so we did to uh, promote um, an expanded version of the uh, Hit by Hit uh, debut album and tour around that and just see how it went, just see how it went altogether. And I didn't know when we started the group again, whether we'd play five gigs together or 50 gigs together. It was just open-ended, just leave it like that. And of course, it, you know, it did fall apart sort of after about a year. It sort of stopped because basically because we were due to tour America again in uh, uh, 2009. And we had maybe 20 or 30 dates set up. And one of the guitarists, I'm not even going to mention his name, and she said, oh, I'm not doing that. Oh, I don't want to go out on tour. He did agree to do it, and tickets were on sale. It was a horrendous situation to be in. So the tour of America was actually scaled down to one St. Valentine's Day massacre at a, a brilliant venue in Chicago called the Metro. So we actually just flew out there for one concert, played it, and then came back home again. And that was when I said, no, he's out of the band, and this is what's happening from now on. So, so to to so was it more of a diplomatic or de- democratic kind of setup before you decided actually you know you're going to take more charge? Well, it was a group, you know, and people have got their own ideas about doing things, and um, sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes it's just difficult to get five people in a band to agree on one photograph. You know, yes, and it's a bit like that. It is a bit tricky. Democracy is overrated, I think. <laughs> God, I've used that so many times. <laughs> this is so true. So now, because you're obviously, you know, you got an album out last year, which you must have been uh-huh. really pleased about, a big, a big yeah. bad, beautiful noise. Did that feel like 
Right. Did, did that feel like a fresh start again? Well, it didn't come out of nowhere. We got back together, we put out Hit by Hit, and then we recorded. It was asked to do a live album, which we did do, called Shot Live at the 100 Club. The money that we made from Shot Live at the 100 Club went to fund another album called Jukebox Fury, uh, which involved Del Bartle from the Sid Press Experience. And I wasn't really happy with that album whatsoever. I just thought it was a compromise album. It started off really good, and then it turned into another thing altogether. So... I like the, the cover to Jukebox Fury. I like five or six of the numbers on it. I think they're really great. But the rest I just thought was just not proper Godfather's material. And um, then that lineup of the band finished. And then we got everybody else pretty much who's, who's in the band now that made uh, A Big Bad Beautiful Noise. Yes. And that album is so much better than... I think it's just... A Big Bad Beautiful Noise is up there with... Any of those so-called classic Godfather's records like Hit by Hit or Birth School Work Therefore, more songs about love and hate, Unreal World or the Orange Album, it's a really strong collection of songs. And uh, it's back to the Godfather's doing what they do best, which is playing rock and roll music, but with our own sort of twist to it. So many different like textures on that album, A Big Bad Beautiful Noise. It's, I think it's a great record. And I think it will probably get more and more appreciated as the years go on as well, as these things often tend to happen like that. This is true, actually. It, it, got, it got, got amazing reviews in every country in the world. I, I can't tell you, it must have got 200 absolutely top rave reviews from, from like every country. Yeah. And then we spent, we've been spending the last sort of year or year and a half going around the world promoting that album. And does it, and, and being on stage, is that the sort of, I know you were saying earlier, and I've heard this from quite a lot of people, the eight hours of waiting is just a nightmare, but that hour and a half on stage is, is the one thing that um, they just think, oh, well, it is kind of worth it for the moment. But actually not just worth it, but just, it's just fantastic. Uh-huh. Well, and I it, still love performing on stage. And uh, the, the, the thing that I, I, I really like is that, we still get an amazing reaction from crowds all around the world. So you can't complain about that. We like to give it to an audience, the Godfathers, a total uh, rock and roll experience to those people. And we give them a lot of energy and we got a lot, a lot of energy back, back from the audience as well. You know, So um, that's one of the definite bonuses of being in a band. One minute you wake up in Chicago, next minute you wake up in Berlin or Hamburg or Madrid or Barcelona or Turkey, or Greece, or what have you. You know, we play pretty much every country in the world. So, you know, after nearly, I don't know how many years it's been since 1985, 33 years or whatever it's been, it's still fantastic to go on stage, you know. And it's you shouldn't take that lightly as well, you know. Enjoy it while it's still here. And while, while the Godfather's still here, we, we, we will still give it some on stage, definitely. Indeed. A true rock and roller, that was the... Um probably the fourth part of my interview with Peter Coyne from The Godfathers. I think we have a little bit more music. And then the last part of that interview, this is a track titled She Gives Me Love.
And that was the opening track, She Gives Me Love, from the album More Songs About Love and Hate. Now, this is going to be the last part of my interview with Peter Cohen from the band as we talk about their busy schedule and also a date they have um, at the beginning of November. This is part of the Shine Festival that's going to feature a lot of bands from the 80s, 90s and all that kind of exciting malarkey. Anyway, this was Peter's idea or view on that subject. Peter, what was your opinions about this? I mean, I don't really, to be honest with you, some bands I really appreciate and some bands I just don't take any notice of them whatsoever. I couldn't care. It's not an endurance test. It's not how long you've been there. It's what you've done, why you've been there. Yes. You know, that makes up the value of a band, I think. Yeah. Because the one thing about The Godfathers is that you've had this fantastic kind of... You know, because a lot of bands are very British or English, aren't they? British, possibly. Um, you know, and, and never sort of particularly did much in Europe or definitely not in America. But you you did have that, that I suppose it was rock and roll, which kind of translates into a lot of other countries rather than just kind of sticking with your own sort of like community. So you must be pleased to sort of have fans that still want to see you all over the, the globe, basically. I've always believed that the Godfathers make universal music and uh, I want it to be understood all around the world. I mean, the Godfathers have had top 40 singles in America. Birth School Work Death was a top 40 record uh, as a single and the album was like number 75 or whatever in the charts, which might sound, you know, this is the official charts in America, but might not sound much to some people out there, but the Sex Pistols never had a top 40 single in America. Robbie Williams has never had a the top an album in the top 75 in America. Do you see what I mean? Yes. It's like we, we got a lot of success out there. College Radio is a big network and platform. It was back in the day, and we were number one on all those stations all over America and on stations all around Europe as well. So we must be doing something, right? Yes, absolutely. Because actually, the one thing that's been amazingly impressive is that this tour coming up, you hardly have a date off as well, which most people feel like, you know, with age, you just need to have a bit of a break. But you've managed to sort of roll it from almost one country to another capital without a, without a break, which is fantastic stamina. Well, the, the next bunch of dates we've got coming up, I'll just read them out to you. We're going, we're starting Brighton. Next Thursday, which is Thursday, 11th of October. The next day after that, uh, we play Le Havre in France. Day after that, we play a, a, a quite a big festival in Germany called Autumn Moon Festival. Then we play Hamburg. Then we've actually got a day off. Then we play Copenhagen, Gothenburg in Sweden, Stockholm in Sweden, Erebro, and Malmo in Sweden. And then we come home. Then after that, we go out for we got about a week off. Then we go out for five dates out, out to Spain. And then after that, we played two gigs in um, uh, Belgium and Holland, like quite big venues and that. And then we got uh, another date in the UK in uh, Bedford Esquires on the 16th of November. And then we play that Shine On Festival on the 17th. Which is So we're busy, busy, busy right to the end of the year. We've been busy right from the beginning of the year. We don't like taking days off because it's expensive to tour in a band. Yes. I, I can't tell you how expensive it is to... Uh, you know, hire vehicles and pay for them yourselves, pay for the fuel and, you know, just do it. so while you're out there actually working, you might as well do as many dates as possible. Yes. If you check any Iggy Pop sort of schedule and he's, you know, he's in his 70s now, he never takes a day off because he likes to do it. He likes to be kept busy and um, he wants to, he wants to perform, you know. Well, actually, I don't feel, I... As, you, as you get older, I don't feel 
any like uh, oh I should slow down or I should be like this or I should be like that no I, I grew up on people like the Stones the Stones are still going and they started in 1962 so God knows how long they've been going Iggy Pop has been going for years and years and years he's no teenager is he Bo Diddley was, you know, he's one of my favourites. He was still rocking till he was like nearly 80 on stage. I saw Bo Diddley on stage and he was maybe 77 or 78 and he was astonishing. It was just like absolutely brilliant. The best band I've seen in the last sort of 10, 15 years is a group called The Sonics. A oh, classic yes. band from the 60s who released Psycho and Strychnine and Have Love Will Travel and all that sort of thing. They're, they're well in their sort of middle 70s. And they, they are the best band I've seen on stage in the last 15, 20, 25 years. Yes. And I am... Better, they were even better than the Ramones. And oh. I love the Ramones. Excellent. Right? So, because with all your experience, what would you say to... What kind of advice would you give a, an 18-year-old or, yes, an 18-year-old starting out? I just wondered what sort of thing that you've kind of thought, God, I, I wish I'd knew this when I started in that exciting world that is rock and roll. Don't pick your spots. That's a good one. <laughs> Don't pick. Well, I'm not. I'm not one for giving out advice to people. To be honest with you, people will make their own mind up about how to do things for themselves. You know, and I don't think it's. Oh, he's the wise man of rock and roll talking. I don't even think about things like that. It's just, you know, I'm doing it my way. The Godfathers have always done it their way. Maybe you should do it your own way yourself. No matter what kind of music it is. Yes, well, that's a good good advice. I did notice you're playing a couple of dates with the Fuzz Tones, who are another one of those yeah. kind of... You must love bands like the Fuzz Tones. <laughs> I don't, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> I think they're all right. I think they're okay, and I think they're a lot better than some bands out there, but I don't really buy their records. And um, I, Listen, I'd much prefer listening to the original stuff, like the Sonics, who I mentioned earlier. Yes. You know, the Fuzz Tones uh, are probably lovely, lovely people. Um They've certainly been around a long time as well. They've probably made some great records that I'm not aware of. I know a lot of people that I know like them, but it's not really my cup of tea, to be quite honest with you. I'd rather listen to the Sonics or the original records that's on those like Nuggets compilations and things like that. You know, that's, that's what I'm really attracted to. Yes. But, they'll, you know, I, I like to be surprised. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to meeting up with them. We're looking forward to playing with them. I'm sure it's going to be a great night. Those gigs are sold out already, so that'll be great. That's that's one gig in Holland and one gig in Belgium with uh, the Fast Times. Yes. And we then, might be playing Amsterdam with them as well. Excellent. So what does it mean then for next year? Because obviously you're finishing with a lot of dates and it was like yeah, last year you did the a Big Bad Beautiful Noise. Have you got more recording um, lined up for, for the next 12 months? Always. To my mind, this is what I always say all the time, most important album for the Godfathers is the next album by the Godfathers. So where you've made uh, a, what we consider to be uh, quite a brilliant album with a big, bad, beautiful noise, you want to take it further and beat that as well and keep uh, set your own bar and keep uh, raising it all the time. There's a couple of projects that we've got coming up that I can't really discuss with you at the moment because they're still sort of reaching fruition if you see what I mean but there's two very interesting projects coming out for the Godfathers uh, one will be coming out maybe in two months time or something and there's another one quite a big project coming out early early next year maybe March April or something next year 
But Fantastic. we're always working, and that's separate to um, us releasing a brand new studio album as well. So, you know, we're working at the moment. I'm writing lyrics. All the guys in the band are writing tunes and things like that. And eventually we'll get together. And I want to aim for, for the next album, to write 15 really, really great numbers and then pick a, a really strong 11 from those 15 to release on an album. So the next album is always the most important to me. Good. You know, I don't, you know, we've, we've had a great history in the Godfathers. I'm really proud of classic tracks we've done, like um, Walking Talking Johnny Cash Blues or Unreal World or Busker Work Death or Because I Said So. Any of those numbers, I want everything fantastic, but we don't want to rely on the past. We're not a museum piece. We don't live in the past. We live in the here and now, right here and now. And you can always make it relevant, always make it contemporary. You know, always do it bigger and better than what you've done before. Excellent. And do you feel then, from what you're saying, that you're probably in one of the best spaces you've ever been in, in your life? Yeah, definitely musically. Definitely, um, well, I'm very happily married as well, so that helps as well. I live in Scotland. I don't live in London anymore. I got married to a really lovely Scottish woman called Karen about four or five years ago. And I live in a place called Presswick in Scotland. Presswick is the only place, it's about 30 or 40 miles outside Glasgow. It's the only place in the UK that Elvis has ever visited. Because when he got out of the army, he flew out from Germany and they refuelled in Presswick and he stopped over for like eight or nine hours or something and then got back on the plane to, to go back to the States. So it's a beautiful part of Scotland and I'm very happy uh, being in Scotland. I'm totally up for Scottish independence I always have been I would be whether I was married to uh, my missus Karen or whether I wasn't I, I think Scotland should be its own country you know I'm going on a march this this Saturday in Edinburgh and it's going to be quite a big march for uh, independence for Scotland there'll be about I don't know over 50,000 people there at least I don't know maybe 60,000 70,000 people I don't know but I think Scotland needs to get out of the so-called United Kingdom I don't believe in things like Brexit or anything like that. I think it's all rubbish. You know, it's that, that whole Brexit situation is just so damaging to everybody who's in a group. How are you supposed to tour for a start if you haven't got freedom of movement? Yes. Well, that's this interesting. Ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Brexit could kill the whole music scene overnight. This is ridiculous. Well, you'd have to get a visa to visit. Imagine if you're touring like we are through, you've got to go through, you go to, for instance, next uh, next week we go from Brighton to La Havre. Okay, you get to La Havre. Uh, what are you supposed to do if you fill in a visa every time you go into a country? Take out your, your equipment and your T-shirts and your merchandise and whatever out of your vehicle and show them to a customs officer. And then you've got to do that again when you travel through France to Belgium, for instance, uh, to get to Germany, where we're going to play our next gig. This is ridiculous, you know. It's going to add so many hours and make it so complicated for bands to actually do that, their day-to-day sort of job of touring that will become eventually financially impossible for the music industry to survive, you know. If Brexit goes down the, the hard road it's going, the music industry is totally finished. And that's going to be a massive shame. Imagine all the money that the UK has made out of music over the years, starting with the Beatles and going right up through Bowie and 
all those bands in the 80s and the 90s and whatever. It will just stop. It will just stop. It's going to kill music. It's going to kill live music for a start. Yes. And, but, you know, you've got, you got uh, festivals like WOMAD. They can't invite certain people over to the country because of immigration laws and things like that. This is ridiculous. Who wants to live in a country where you can't experience culture? You know, even Churchill during the Second World War, and he was another bag of uh, piranhas altogether, Churchill, even he said, look, you know, we've got to fund culture. Even during the Second World War, they put a certain amount of money into uh, arts because, you know, as he said, if we haven't got that, then what are we fighting for? You've got nothing unless you've got an artistic sort of uh, setup in your country. And that's got to be interchangeable, where you can go over to somebody else's country and they can come to yours without any problems. That's why I do not agree with stopping uh, freedom of movement. I've never heard the like in all my day. It's, it's a sick, stupid idea. Yes. Well, actually, it's interesting because I did an interview with Fish quite recently and he, he said he had all the same sort of issues as well about sort of visas and tour and thinking, think, after, after March, we might, that might be the end of it all. <laughs> it might be just... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I read about that. Yeah, I read about that. And I don't like his music, but I thought what he did was he, he just laid it down for everybody to, to read and see. If anybody hasn't seen it, uh, search it out for yourself. It's Fish from Marillion talking about the state of the music industry. And I'd agree with him 100%. Absolutely. Suddenly we will become Fish fans. But that, sadly, is the last of my... Um, interview with Peter Coyne from The Godfathers. If you want to know any more information about the band, you can go to their website. Just put in Godfathers and band, otherwise you'll come across, I don't know, probably the Francis Ford Coppola film instead. But um, yes, a big thank you for that and a big thank you for listening. I'm going to leave you with one more song from the band. This is Unreal World. Take care, have a great week.